Our study this evening is uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, the third chapter, verse 1. Now, verse 1 here in chapter 3, down to verse 4, is connected with the thought uh, that Paul brought up in uh, chapter 2, verse 6. And it's uh, all the way through there that the body of Christ is confronted with the mind of God. We have the mind of God and that will solve every problem, that will uh, ease every uh, doubt and fear. We have the mind of God that's been revealed. And uh, the thing that's been revealed is something that the world did not see. Uh, because Paul said that if the wise, if the princes, the rulers of this world had seen it, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. And so the world has its wisdom, which is opposed to the God's wisdom. And so, so, so far as we've been looking at the body, uh, the nature of the body, uh, it's empowered by God. It's imperiled by division. It's composed of fools of God. That's the way the world views us, as being fools. We're not resting on man's wisdom. That's the nature of the body. And it's confronted with the mind of God. All right, we'll finish this up. And then uh, in verse 4 of this evening, and then in verse uh, 5, we go into another phase of Paul's discussion about the body, the nature of the body of Christ. It's God's workmanship. And we'll see that verse 5 through 9. All right. In verse 1, brothers, Paul says, I count... I could not address you as spiritual. Now they're not natural, but they're not spiritual. And so uh, there's the third category. The word is divided. The world is divided into natural people, spiritual people, and whatever else they are, or these are that Paul writes to. The natural, uh, we are, uh, are our brothers who can't even see the revelation. The spiritual can and do. And these that he's talking about here in verse 1, can and don't. And so he says, brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. Now the word literally means non-speakers. That's what infants means, non-speakers. The word literally means uh, they can uh, goo-goo and gaga, and uh, they can't say daddy or mama. They haven't learned that yet. And so that's how the word Paul used to address this congregation. They are so immature 
that they can't speak. And so they're what? Well, he calls them brothers, doesn't he? And so what does Paul do? Well, he writes them up in the Christian contender, and he says, watch out for these brethren because they're helpless and causing great problems in the brotherhood. Now, do you see how we would do that? That's the way we would react. Oh, watch out for them. Watch out for these babes because they're going to cause trouble. Well, Paul seen them as brothers. That's the point. He's bound to have done that because we speak where the Bible speaks and silent where the Bible silent, and that's what we do. And so I know that's what he did, right? He said, brothers, I, give, I gave you milk and not solid food. You know it's a sin to give babies solid food. Now we, we like to show off our ability to dispense solid food a lot of times. He said, brothers, I gave you milk and not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. And so he's still not going to put steak, steak chunks down their throat. He will give them milk because milk strengthens babies. Solid food chokes babies. Milk strengthens them. And so if you're working uh, with a spiritually weak, immature congregation, and most of them are because they've had they haven't had the preaching that they've needed for years and years. And so, uh, uh, so if you're working with a spiritually weak and immature congregation, you feed them with milk. You don't choke them to death on meat. Uh, then a little later, some problems and even... Uh, Later, some ground-up meat until they uh, can handle steak, but you lead them into that. Now, that's one of the wise things about a leader, God's leaders in the church. Verse 3, he says, You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling amongst you, are you not worldly? In other words, that's the evidence right there that they're worldly. Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Paulus, are you not mere men? Does that not show you up for what you really are? You're following man's wisdom, man's reasoning. And so when we get divided over human teachers, we can't even uh, talk yet. Uh, we're babies and need milk all over again. Now the last two uh, that we've looked at are in the church. Uh, it's made up of spiritual brothers and carnal brothers. <coughs> and did you know that spiritual brothers can't digest milk? I mean they can digest, brothers can digest milk. And so you can't feed a congregation on milk and the spiritual brothers can grow too. You see what that's uh, what I'm trying to say is 
your lessons and your sermons should be in a vernacular to where even the 10-year-old kids can pick up on it. This idea of using big words may have its place in the world, but not in the church. Nothing wrong with big words. It's just that you want to be careful that you don't uh, feed babes in Christ uh, a piece of chunk of meat that's going to choke them. Now, if jealousy and quarreling is present among us, isn't that a sign that we're worldly? Well, surely. So we really need to get back to the simplicity uh, of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 and parables and back to that uh, Jesus taught his jealous, quarreling group because that's what the apostles were, weren't they? Jealous, quarreling group. How did Jesus handle them? Now, a wise leader in the church is going to naturally pick up on Jesus being his example, and he's going to take his his uh, problems and his he's going to look for his solutions to these problems in Jesus, isn't he? You sit around and you don't wore your thumbs and chew your fingernails. Well, what am I going to do about this problem? Jesus has already faced it. He faced this problem with his apostles. They were quarreling and they were jealous one of another. They wanted one set at his right hand and one at his left. And uh, uh, how did Jesus handle it? Well, that's what the leader of God's people wants to know. He doesn't approach some man-written book on man's philosophy on how to handle them kind of problems. He looks to the Lord. And so maybe that's one reason we have four Gospels, at least Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to tell us how Jesus dealt with carnal brothers. We're not the twelve carnal. The twelve carnal, see, were the twelve apostles were carnal. And so the ministers, the elders work uh, is to move a congregation from carnality to spirituality. You don't drive them out just because they're carnal. You work with them. And so we've got to deal with the way the flock is and not the way we want them to be. Now that's very important. You're working with a congregation. You're not working with one that uh, like you want it to be. You're working with one that is the way it is. And you begin there. Uh, so uh, to deal with them the way they are, that's the idea. Realistic therapy. That is, you identify who you are, identify who you want to be, and you start moving in that direction. That's called realistic ther therapy. Here's what I am. Here's what I want to be. And I need, therefore, to find steps to get from here to there. I'll make some wrong decisions along the way. That's understood. We're really won't be steps there, but it will maybe be a step aside and maybe a step back. 
in the process. But if I've got a, a goal in front of me, I'm more liable to get there. You can shoot a gun up into the air a few thousand times, and you might knock down a duck. But if you aim at him, uh, you'll be more likely to hit him. And so the point is, that's what Paul is talking about here, that we need to aim at the carnal brethren with spiritual milk. Now the word jealousy there <coughs> is an interesting word in the Greek uh, because we get from that word uh, that's we get the form of, uh, of zeal. Uh, that's strange that a word so bad can be used so good. It literally means a hot contention. This word jealousy. It has quarreling in it. But more the idea I will uh, uh, that I will pull that one back in order to get it where he is. I'll do anything to uh, climb this ladder to get where I want to get and I don't care who I stomp on or who I have to push aside or who I have to destroy their reputation to arrive there. That's jealousy at work. So jealousy is wanting what a person has so bad that I will destroy a person to get it. Now, there's nothing wrong in wanting what another has. Nothing wrong with that at all. I may want the maturity that an older brother has, and maybe the, the reason I don't have it is because I've not lived long enough to have it, or maybe I've not directed myself in that direction as much as he has. So you see, it's a matter of direction. So it's all right to want want it, but I don't want his position. I just want his character. I want the character he's got in my life, but I, I want him to travel so far beyond that that I'll still want what he's got. See, that's the value of older brothers, uh, is that they're, they're our examples. So jealousy is let me pull you back to my position and let me take your position. Uh, it's got striving involved in this also. And the word quarreling uh, is the Greek word etza. And etza was the Greek god of contention and strife. And so it's just an argument one of contentious striving with that person. In other words, it's warfare. So what we've got is wanting that person's place and, and uh, warring against that person because he's got that position we want. Some of the papers circulating in the Brotherhood uh, were started for the purpose of war. Uh, so jealousy, strife, and man's problems are the three marks of carnality or worldlyism. 
Okay, what follows that? I see the church empowered, imperiled by God, em, empowered by God, excuse me, imperiled by division. Uh, I see it uh, com, composed of fools. I see it not resting on human wisdom. What would a fella as the next logical step? What would follow this as the next logical step? Well, Paul is very logical to talk about the fact that the church is God's workmanship. Since it's not man's workmanship in the sense of carnal man, so let's notice the church as the workmanship of God. Verse 5 down to verse 9. <coughs> first point he makes is that men, even leaders, are only slaves. Did you get that? Men in the church, particularly in the denominational world, make themselves out to be somebody special. But Paul's going to work on that idea. Uh, the leaders are only slaves or servants. That's the word that he uses here. Uh, he will use the word slave later on. Men, even leaders, are only servants. And so he says in verse 5, what, after all, uh, is a... Uh, after all, uh, who is, what is Apollos and what is uh, Paul? Why did he say that? Because they're saying, I follow Apollos and I follow Paul. So he's dealing with the division there. He says they were making them, uh, them as if they were human leaders. But the point is, is that it's no human demagogue. A demagogue makes a preacher or a teacher like Paul and Paulus a lesser god, a minor deity. And they're just brothers. That's why Paul's using the word brothers repeatedly with this congregation. He's not only a brother to the spiritual, but he's also a brother to the carnal because he wants desperately to lead the carnal into spirituality. And that should be our attitude. Leaders are only servants. Now they counted Apollos and Paul, the number two guys in the brotherhood. Some counted Apollos one and Paul two. And others counted Paul one and Apollos two. But they uh, lined them up one and two in all of the brotherhood and Paul refused to be numbered because Jesus uh, did, uh, didn't. Jesus was a 10, and he become a zero. Now, you need to think about that. When he came to this earth, he came as a zero. And so the only biblical number is zero. In Philippians 2, uh, he made himself nothing. That's what Philippians 2 says. Uh, 
He made himself nothing. He was a ten, the Lord was, equal to God. He made himself a zero, and a zero ain't no number at all. So what is Apollos? What is Paul? Only table servants, that's all they are. Through whom, he says in the text, you come to believe. They're just servants. They've led you to believe the truth, and that in doing so, they're just servants, that's all. Like the one serving a table. Uh, men, even leaders, are only servants. Uh, that's his point in verse 5 through 8. Now, Paul makes his statement of leaders in the brotherhood as being people that you just whistle at for another glass of water in a restaurant. Or, this steak is cooked medium and I wanted it medium well. And so they're just waiters, just hired servants. And they're not owners of the cafe. They're just table servers. Uh, they see to it that the food and the drink are on the table and the utilities for people to eat with. That's all they are. They're just channels through whom you believe. That's all they are. Then in verse 6 he says, <coughs> We're just hard hands on the farm. Listen to how he says it. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. God made it grow, in other words. And so we're just hands, that's all we are, hired hands. And the hired hands are rewarded. Look at verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. But he's still just a servant to the church. That's all he is. So Paul says, I'm nothing. Apollos, Apollos is nothing. Uh, why do you want to add nothing to your life? That's the whole point. We're only here so you can be something, and only God can make you something. He's the one that makes in you. He's the one that builds in you. As Philippians 2.13 says, I believe it is, it's God that works in you to both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so as far as the work is concerned, the worker is not to be glorified at all. Is he to be appreciated? Well, naturally. Uh, of course he is. But to say, I follow, you're doing something more than appreciation then. Uh, you're lordshipping them. And there's one lord. There's not two. Now we all serve one another as examples. We are somebody's example and somebody is our example. You ever thought of yourself that way? You don't know who's following you. 
necessarily. You're following someone, and someone's following you. And so everybody is somebody's stronger brother that the Bible speaks of, and somebody uh, is, uh, and also somebody's weaker brother. But nevertheless, you're a brother, whether you're weak or whether you're strong, whether you're carnal or whether you're spiritual, you're a brother. Paul addressed them as brothers. So Paul simply says, the one who plants is nothing. The one who waters is nothing. The only one who is something is he who gives the increase. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5 and verse 3, not to lord it over the brethren. So Paul, the apostle, would not take the position of the cause uh, of the cause of their believing. Uh, he's, uh, he says simply, uh, I'm not the Lord of your faith. I'm merely the pipeline through which you receive the testimony of God. But in the text he says, he who plants and he who waters will be rewarded. And so don't get the idea that it's insignificant service that we render. Just remember, it's a service uh, that we render to the congregation because we do receive uh, reward uh, for what we do. It is significant. Each man will be rewarded, the text says, according to his uh, labor. Uh, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 21 and verse 23? He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. Now I'll make you Lord over many. And so Paul said in, uh, well, he said, be ye followers of me as I follow Christ. Nothing wrong in following a man as long as he follows Christ. Uh, that's a statement he makes in the fourth chapter, verse 16, and also the 11th chapter, verse 1. He didn't say, because I uh, uh, be followers of me as I follow Christ. He didn't say, because I, I follow. Uh, that's uh, the, the uh, twist of cultism is to get somebody to follow because, like you do. Uh, because you follow. One of the things that Jesus emphasized in John's record about himself is, I can do nothing of myself. I speak nothing of myself. My teaching is not mine. And so you see the context. Uh, uh, or the constant, having them look away from him to the one who sent him. Where did uh, Jesus put the emphasis? On God. Where do we put the emphasis? 
on God in Christ. And then he said as a conclusion, as the Father sent me, even so send I you. So Jesus gave the example of pointing away from him to the one he was following. And that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1. He said, imitate me. Yes, as you see me imitating Christ. And so there's nothing wrong in following men if they follow Christ. Uh, the same as Jesus said, imitate me as you see me imitate my Father. For whosoever hath seen me hath seen the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Why? Because I've seen the Father. And so if you find a good brother following Jesus, walk along beside him, not behind him, but beside him. There is no superiority and inferiority in this matter. Sure, there's one that may be more spiritual, and you may covet that. You may desire that. You may be jealous in wanting that. You don't want his position, you want his character. Uh, one more point before we leave this segment of Scripture in verse 9. For we are uh, God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. Now, one illustration he uses here, you're God's building. Another illustration. Uh, who's the owner of the field? God is. Who's the owner of the building? God is. Paul was a what? An expert builder in verse 10. Paul always introduces something he will discuss. And so, uh, so far, we've been in a field. We've been planting and watering. We're about to be in a building, building on something. And so Paul will merely, nearly always in the last paragraph introduce what he's going to say in the next. That's just his way of writing. The Spirit inspired him, but that's just the way of writing. Near the end of nearly every paragraph, Paul will say something that gets you ready for the next paragraph. And so don't worry about the building Right now, we, uh, we'll cover that in the next chapter. Uh, he, he has discussed a field. We are God's field. Now in Isaiah 28 and verse 16, that will talk about a building concept that we will discuss in the next chapter. Because there it says, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. He that believeth shall not be in haste or put to shame. But then starting in verse 24 of that text, he talks uh, from an agricultural view. And in verse 24, there's a seasonal plowing of God. A seasonal plowing. That's when you plow is in plowing season, you see. 
Now this field is called Israel that he's talking about there in Isaiah. God goes out and plows in the right season, in the proper time. In verse 25 of that context, there's discriminate planting. You plant this over here, uh, that over there, and this over here. There are soils that won't grow peanuts, uh, but placed in Georgia in, uh, is a good place uh, for peanuts. Another place in Georgia will, will not grow peanuts, but will grow head-high cotton. And so you not only have seasonal plowing in the field, you have discriminate planting. And then there's careful uh, reaping in verse 27. You want to go over and read that when you get home, probably. Uh, don't run a cotton picker across the wheat. So you take uh, discrimination in what uh, tools you use in the reaping process. And, and there's a lot of advice there for a man who would preach or teach or uh, work as an elder in a congregation. There's a lot of advice right there. Then in verse 28 of that context, there's fruitful uh, thrashing where the chaff is blown from the wheat. And then there's the glorious result. It is the planting of God because it's God's field. It's where God works. He works, in this case, in Israel. In the spiritual case Paul's talking about, he works in the church, the body. But he's the one that gives the increase. We don't. We're merely servants. We serve tables, as it were. Now, <clears throat> All the time, uh, this form of thought that he's doing all this thinking, it was God behind the whole thing anyway. All he discovered is how God had arranged it. Uh, why do they plant at a certain time? Well, he found out there's a time to plant. But uh, who did it start with? And how did they discover those ways of reaping and thrashing. American ingenuity? No, I don't think so. They just studied some of the principles that God had laid down. Read Eli Whitney's autobiography and you'll find out what's behind the cotton gin. <clears throat> Read the biography of George Washington Carver and see how many thousands of things he discovered from the peanut and hundreds of things he discovered from the sweet potato. Uh, finding all the time his understanding of God's work in his, in this uh, creation. And so the wisdom of all of this comes from God. And so we might do a good study, uh, we might do good to study a little bit about how things are planted, how things are watered, how things are reaped, and all that outside the body even. 
And so we began to understand that it takes a little bit of brains and not just trust in God. It takes a little bit of brains. And you can get it from Isaiah in that picture there of God's planting and harvesting. And, and here in tied along with the third chapter here, 1 Corinthians, about Paul and the workers in the church that plant and water. So we are God's fellow workers, aren't we? We're in his field. He's the one, he's the owner, and we just work for him. Uh, so a farmer, So the farmer is a co-worker with God. God doesn't do a good job of raising cotton without him. See, we fit into God's plan. But he ain't going to have no crop without God's increase. God's the one that gives the increase. Now, the Lord said, if the blind lead the blind, they both fall in a ditch. And God lets them. He don't want them to, but he lets them because of the stubborn rebellion of man. And so there's joint participation in it. But the field is whose? It's God's. Belongs to him. And the power is whose? God's. And the work is whose? God's. And all we do is cooperate. That's all. We get the glorious privilege of being a fellow worker by planting and watering with God. And so we are God's fellow workers. We uh, skipped over Isaiah 28. I suggest you read the whole chapter. And... uh, when you get home tonight and then read Isaiah 61 where he talks about Israel being the trees leaving the garden figure uh, the wheat figure trees planted by God as he speaks of oaks not scrubs oaks of righteousness and so verse 5 through 9 is God's workmanship and when you flip the coin, it's now man's workmanship. God has a part, man has a part. And Paul talks about both of them. And since I've found out I'm a fellow worker, and that's what we found out in this study so far, I can talk about my work, can I? And so the local body is the workmanship of man when he's God's fellow worker. And that fellow worker is the spiritual and the carnal man. He's the fellow worker. Remember now, the Lord, how he dealt with carnality amongst the apostles. They were jealous, weren't they? And like Paul told these brethren of Corinth, you act like men in regard to that. Well, what did the apostles do? The same thing. Paul here calls these carnal carnal brethren brothers. We need to call them brothers. We need to recognize our job is to feed of milk, 
until they're able to handle strong meat. Because if we go into a congregation that's not spiritual, and somebody's been playing with it and toying with it for 10, 20, 30 years, and you come along, then your job is not to condemn them. Your job is not to uh, write a commentary on how bad they are. Your job is to roll up your sleeve and call them carnal brethren, carnal uh, brothers, brethren. You make yourself one of them. As Paul said, he was all things to all men. Anyway, don't forget we've already studied chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. And so the you he speaks to are both spiritual and carnal. The carnal work, uh, the carnal works right beside our side since we're the spiritual giants of the brotherhood. And in a sense, we are more uh, mature and we do possess the mind of Christ, don't we? And so if we work with the carnal man right beside us, he's going to grow in me if we're spiritual. He's going to grow. He's going to see us as an example to follow as we follow Christ. Uh, he's going to grow in the image of him that we are growing in the image of. And so if I'm following Christ and he's right alongside me, this carnal man, I need to love him, recognize him as a brother, and work with him to bring him out of his carnality into spirituality. Uh, he's not going to grow in uh, our image, but he will both be growing in the image of the one for whom we are working. That's why we need to view the most carnal members of the congregation as our fellow worker, because he's God's fellow worker. He's working with God in the field. And if I view him that way, we won't judge him. You see, if I see him as a brother, recognizing his carnality, his lack of spirituality, I see him as a brother. We will discriminate about him. In other words, we'll make discriminations about what he needs or what food we could supply him. We'll make judgments on what we're going to do to help him but we won't judge him because the Lord doesn't judge him. Does the Lord judge him? Well, if he's in Christ, there's no condemnation. Remember Romans 8, 1? So the Lord makes him a fellow worker, doesn't he? So here's man's workmanship in verse 10 through 15. So verse 10. By the grace God has given me, Paul says. So the local body, uh, wherever you are, is man's workmanship. Paul puts this second uh, because it goes second. It's only my workmanship because I'm follow fellow workers with the boss or the owner. But Paul says he's the master builder and I'm the ordinary builder. I'm not even an expert builder. Paul is. 
Now this is going to be significant because we're going to see that Paul laid a foundation that you can't lay. The apostles laid a foundation that you cannot lay. You build upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Alright, that's going to be his point here. He says, By the grace of God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. The most important thing in an ancient house was the foundation uh, in Ephesus, in Ephesians. Paul says that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. That word for foundation means a throwing down, a casting down. And the figure is the hole in the ground that the ancients dug and they filled with rock, throwing stones down, down that hole to make a foundation. And so before the first stone was thrown in the hole on which the world was built, God chose you on this foundation. And so the idea here, uh, Paul uh, throwed the stones in the hole. He laid the foundation. How many times do you have to do that? Only once laying the foundation. And so we don't need to worry about throwing down stones to build a foundation. That's already been done. In fact, in this text it says an expert builder called Paul did that. Anybody can build a house once the foundation is laid. The foundation is the important matter because when the rains come and the winds blow, what happens to the house? The walls come tumbling down. And that's the point Jesus makes in uh, his uh, uh, great sermon. He says, I am uh, I am the great uh, expert builder. And so you and I don't need to worry about being experts. The only expert needed has already been there. Paul, by name, and the other apostles. They are the foundation layers. They laid the foundation as they went forth preaching what? What did Jesus commission them to preach? Uh, uh, scripture? No. No, 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 no. Genesis of Revelation? No, 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 no. What did he commission them to preach? Go into all the world and preach the Somebody say it. Gospel. Gospel. What's the gospel? Death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the foundation on which the church rests. And that's the foundation on which the church is built. And the apostles are the ones who laid that foundation. You don't lay that foundation. You build upon the foundation that they laid. Because they were commissioned to go where? Into all the world to every creature, every creature in all the world. And so they've laid the foundation. The apostles and prophets laid the foundation 
which is Christ. That's Ephesians 2 and verse 20. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 10 and other places, it says the same thing. And so Paul says, I laid the foundation so you and I don't need to worry about laying a foundation. So what's our work? Our work is building, building on that foundation. Our work is laying bricks. That's what he's going to say here. We lay bricks, uh, gold, silver, costly stones, so on and so forth. And so we're bricklayers. That takes a little uh, expertise, but you don't have to be uh, the expert builder. Uh, the expert builder determines the plumbness of the, and the soundness of the foundation. And when that's determined, any old hand can build the building or lay the brick. And so he's talking about the ordinary, uh, extraordinary work we do. Imagine getting the glory of building God's house. But I'd like to lay the foundation. Can't do that. It's already been done. Well, I'm going to lay another foundation. And that weakens the first foundation. When you don't have uh, a good foundation. And so as you lay a foundation on a foundation, you don't strengthen it, you weaken it. Best thing to do if you don't have a good one is tear it down and build another one. One foundation is all it takes. And so if the expert builder is already uh, worked, we build on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. And so Paul's going to talk to them about taking care of how they build on that foundation. So the beginning, and the, and the beginning is the foundation. The continuing is our work as we build upon the foundation which is Christ. He says, For no man, no one, verse 11, can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. It's already been laid. So don't worry about foundation. Uh, when I preach Jesus in a place where Jesus has not been named, I'm not laying down a foundation. I'm proclaiming a foundation has been laid. And it's been laid 2,000 years ago by the apostles. It was laid before then in prophecy. And so we're building on what's already happened. We cannot lay a foundation. Now we may use that figure, but when we do, people are not going to understand this verse. We build on the foundation. The only one that can be can uh, uh, can be laid has been laid one time for all time. Now we need to be careful how we build on it. Now here is the materials we build with. Verse twelve. If any man build on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood hay or stubble. Now, these would be the people that we bring to Christ uh, or mature in Christ. 
doesn't Peter say that we're li living stones and are built upon a spiritual house? 1 Peter 2, verse 5, he certainly does. And so these are not our good deeds or our character uh, or anything else. This is our work. These are people. The Lord uses us to get on to the foundation. Now the materials we find out, uh, there are materials we, uh, excuse me, the materials we find out there are the materials we find out there. I mean, we don't create the materials and we don't have to judge what kind of material it is. Uh, in verse 13, fire will do that. God will do that with judgment. Uh, we just need to make sure that they're all laid on that foundation well. That's our total work, to see that they're one to Christ uh, in, a right, in the right way and that they are matured in Christ rightly. If, if they're wood, hay, and stubble that Paul mentions there, uh, that's their fault, not ours, because we build correctly on this foundation. It's their fault if they turn out to be wood, hay, and stubble in the judgment of God when he judges them with fire. And he will because we're tried by fire every day. It's our work to see that they're on the foundation. So what's the only thing we can build anybody on? Well, on Jesus. Uh, that's so simple and yet so hard to get across to American preachers because for the most part we're trying to build on everything else sometimes. Uh, the latest fad along the way, and we agree about everything that comes down the pike, and the Bible is sort of, uh, is sort of serious in its admonition and uh, not to get involved with genealogies and old wives' tales and fables and all those arguments that gender only contentious, uh, contentiously and don't build the body, we're to leave them alone. The Lord is not concerned primarily that we are making sure that everybody builds on that foundation is uh, doctrinally and spiritually sound. He will see some fire, he will send some fire to take care of that matter. And we talked about this. Our job is to preach the truth in love. How people take it is up to them. They can turn out to be the jewels that was mentioned here, of gold and silver and those things, precious stones. Or they can turn out to be wood, hay, and stubble that will be burnt up in the fire of the judgment of God that comes upon all men in our everyday lives. All right, so he will bring judgment into their lives and trouble into their lives. God will. Uh, like he does in our life. And so if they got the opportunity to say, I'm with uh, hay, stubble, uh, gold, sun, or precious stones. So don't get over concerned with everybody being right 
by sundown. We need to give people, we need to have a patience to deal with people in love and recognize that they don't have to be right by sundown, so to speak. Making sure that they got the truth on marriage, divorce, and all those other issues that you're right on. Don't be particularly concerned about that. Get them connected with Jesus. That's the whole point. That's our work. Connect them with Jesus. Jesus take care of the rest of it. If you get people's allegiance to Jesus, if you preach the Lord in a way that they see His sovereignty uh, and they see the glories that He has to offer, when they begin to see that, they will follow Jesus and Jesus will teach them by His life, by His Word. And so if they're not correct on marriage and these different problems, don't, don't get all out of shape about it because they don't agree with you by sundown. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Stay out of other people's business. Build on this foundation the purity of uh, Jesus on this foundation because he is uh, the foundation itself. And when you elaborate, when you teach about Jesus, men and women will become to come to see the everything about him. They'll come, as John said, the reason he wrote John's gospel. Uh, he said, many signs did Jesus are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe. And so if we preach in that way and cause people to believe in Jesus, uh, and there's a lot of people that will talk about Jesus, but they don't really believe in him. But when we bring them down to see a man who condescended from being the creator of this universe to come down to redeem us. When we begin to do that, that's our job. And then the rest of it will work itself out because they now see Jesus as Lord. What converted the 3,000 Jews on the day of Pentecost? When they come to see one point that they'd missed, they saw Jesus as Lord. Wasn't that Peter's conclusion in verse 36? He said, now let all the house of Israel. He's finished his sermon. Now he's going to conclude. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly, with evidence, assuredly, that God made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard that, they had a meltdown, didn't they? That's our job in building on the foundation. So somebody's got a problem in their marriage. Somebody's got problems in there thinking about marriage and different things. We don't worry about that. That will fall in line when they see Jesus as Lord. And so you get them connected with Jesus. The son has a reputation of being able to take care of himself. He'll take care of these problems. It's his church. If you get them uh, connected properly to Christ, they will get right on the other issues like marriage, divorce, and all them things. Uh, but you don't cause an uproar in a congregation because somebody believes in abortion. That's not right. But you don't get up. You don't get your bowels all upset over it. And as a leader, you show your leadership by calling them brother 
and loving them because they're carnal. But if you preach Christ, you build on that foundation the solid, the solidity of what needs to be built. Now they'll fall line, but they've got to see Christ as Lord. Now I don't know how many people was impressed with the last few lessons we've had on Sunday morning. But that was the thrust of it, is for people to see Christ has all authority. He vested all authority in His Word. That Word was given to the apostles and was distributed to the whole world, every creature. It was made known. It was manifested. That Word is sufficient for all our needs and God demands respect for His Word. And so that needs to be our primary concern. A fellow tells a true story about a situation that happened when he was holding a gospel meeting up in Wisconsin, I believe it was, years ago. He met a fellow uh, by the name of Maurice, a hard-headed Pole, who attended every night, who never obeyed the gospel. And this friend went to Maurice and outright told him, uh, you know you've heard enough gospel to convert the world. Why haven't you obeyed it? And he said, I've never had a preacher that could answer one question. Did Balaam's ass talk to him? Uh, and this friend said, suppose we argued and I convinced you that Balaam's ass talked to him. Would then you be baptized? Well, I don't guess I would. He said, well, suppose that we argued and you convinced me that Balaam's ass didn't speak to him. Then would you be baptized? He said, well, I don't guess I would. And so this friend said, since Balaam's ass doesn't... Uh, keep you from obeying, being baptized, what does? He said, I don't guess anything. And so he was baptized and he wrote a few weeks later and said, dear friend, Balaam's ass did talk to him. And so <laughs> when this friend uh, got Maurice uh, right on Christ, he was right on Balaam's ass. And so when we get somebody right on Christ, he's going to be right on a lot of things that we, uh, if we got him right on before we go get him right on Christ, it wouldn't have mattered anyway. And so get a person right on Jesus, get them connected to Christ and the church of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Get him on the foundation and let the Lord take care of the rest. Mature him as best you can, but trust the Lord to judge whatever he is. You go whether it's gold or silver or costly stone or wood or hay or stubble. Now what will that do? Here we are in verse 13. His work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring, bring it to light. It will be uh, revealed with fire. And the fire uh, will test 
the quality of each man's work. What does fire do to wood, hay, and stubble? It burns it up. What does it do to gold, silver, and precious stones? It makes them stronger when they go through the fire. It purifies it. And so we lay the bricks there. The Lord sends the fire, which would be judgments, temptations, trials, and tribulations. Then it burns up if it's wood, hay, or stubble. They were sorrowful about that and glad about that. Uh, we are sorrowful that they were wood, hay, and stubble, but aren't we grateful that the church was purified? That's the idea. And so we welcome God's judgment. And we really know who are the saints, the spiritual brothers and sisters. So is judgment in time good stuff? Yes, it is. Uh, uh, trouble is good tribulation is good stuff temptation is good stuff and so we rejoice when we fall into manifold temptations and by the way the word rejoice in one translation is pure joy when you fall into manifold temptations knowing that tribulation work of patience and patience endurance and so on and so forth. That's James 1, verse 2 through 4. Joy. Joy because of the outcome, not because it feels good. Nobody likes to be tested with fire. But it has a good effect. If we're spiritual, we're described here as gold, precious stones. And they gain strength and they're purified by fire. What brings out the dross and gold? The fire, the furnace. Well, our time's up. So I'm going to mark mark it right here. Is this the 22nd? It is. And we'll pick up with the that context uh, next week. So the fire proves my work, it also proves what? It proves me. And uh, the work that I do may pr produce, uh, it may be that the people that I preach to are wood, hay, and stubble, but they'll be burned up. That, that doesn't mean literally they're going to be burned up. That means that God, that's, that's a way of speaking. Fire speaks of God's judgment. His judgments now. As James says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith and there's where it's at. Hebrews 12, verse 5, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, scourges every son that he receives. That goes along with it. Remember the prayer that Jesus taught the apostles? 
Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Uh, as it is, in, uh, well, I forget that part. Uh, and deliver us not from evil. Uh, deliver us from evil. Will, will God deliver you to evil? Will he? He made this world. Where did evil come from? I stop and think about it. And why would Jesus teach the apostles to pray, Father, deliver us from evil? Because if you want evil, He will allow you to have what you think you want. You want to go to hell? There it is, bud. Right down there. Well, He does say we... Uh... They'll send us a strong delusion. So, yes. And so, when you when you pray, Father, deliver us from evil, uh, what are you saying? You're asking God to be your shepherd, aren't you? Aren't you? Lead me. And He'll lead you away from evil. But if you want evil, it's here. It's in this world that God made. Well, 